I am back. My dog is mad at me. <laughs> but, he, but he's just a corgi, so a loaf of bread is angry at you. Oh. <laughs> I upset a very large potato. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. So Joey, I just ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon. I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Matt. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I'm a star man waiting in the sky. I'd like to come meet you and blow your minds. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Deck improvement. Changing our decks over time. Basically, yeah, sort of studying little evolutions that happen over our decks, tweaking things here and there, especially whenever new cards come out. Dana, I think that this is something that you've observed over a couple of different podcasts listening to uh, things that I think like DJ from Jumbo Commander or Shivan Butt from Commanderin, uh, things that they were saying, and that there might be different habits about the ways that people update their decks over time, and you thought that would be a really good idea to kind of dive into how we personally do it to see what we can find out. Yeah, for sure. I do want to first say, though, Matt, that that was actually genuinely kind of a funny joke. It wasn't just like dad, <laughs> dad joke. Girl it wasn't, I actually, it yeah, wasn't was dad-tastic good. enough? No, it was actually almost funny. I think you kind of messed up there. I, I don't know what you're <laughs> yeah, your, your joke was too funny, Matt. That's, that's I mean, a problem. I was trying to rack my brain to see what song lyrics you just quoted. I wanted to say it was a Queen song, but then I was like, meh. Maybe not. <laughs> We're talking about, we about making have... changes to decks, so I had Bowie on the mind, and that's just where I went. Uh, Gotta love it. it Absolutely close. love it. It was close. I did watch Bohemian Rhapsody, actually. That was a good movie, by the way. I so, not, it, Joey, we want to talk about <laughs> Joey, Joey keeps trying, trying to like, have a podcast I'm trying desperately here. to get us back on track <laughs> here, <laughs> fellas. <laughs> All right, so rather than talk about movies and music and jokes that are surprisingly funny, even though Matt told them. Joseph doesn't appreciate the fine things in life. We know that now. I I truly don't. But I would appreciate it if you would share any stories about fun games or new cards or anything like that you've acquired recently or played recently. So speaking of finer things, I did actually get blown away by Stubborn Denial, Joey. Um, I played some games. (gasps) Granted, I, I should lead off with... It was, I triggered Ferocious with a Death Shadow on board because I was playing some Modern, but your boy still has it. Went to a new store, played some Modern, Forrowed, just because that's what Death Shadow does. It wasn't me. Um, It was totally the deck, but I did play some Commander in between, and it was was a good time. Well, that's good. Yeah, and Stubborn Denial, that is a darn good card. I think that that's a solid replacement for Swan Song and a good one for Negate. If you've got a Commander that automatically sets up that Ferocious, it's really, really perfect I countered so many Planeswalkers with it, and so many people were fussy. Like, Teferi, no. Uh, What else did I counter? Elspeth, no. (laughs) You are a mean man, Mr. Morgan. Nahiri, even. I saw the red-white Nahiri pop out um, because he wanted to Flop and Ember cool in the play. I was like, nope, still no. Well, I think it, people tend to get salty though if you just like say no every time, Matt. You need to try to shake it I up. I didn't like, say it, no. You gotta be like, <laughs> yet. 
or nine. Nine. Just, just, just to, just to like, you know, keep them on their toes. I think or, people find people find that much more soothing. My favorite, actually, um, a couple of my buddies, we would just like karate chop the card out of the other person's hand. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> that's mean. Well, it, it worked. I mean, and like we, we were playing together for years and it was, you know, probably a, a couple adult soda pops in. But, you know, that was probably my favorite. I'm just saying, if, if you karate chop a card out of my hand and it bends it in any way, I'm making you buy me a foil Muldrotha. That Hey, I have one. I don't need to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as I hand it yeah. off, I'm just oh! It made its end. <laughs> All right, Dana, how about you? Any fun stories from games recently? I, I finally played this week, which was the first time in like three weeks because of weather. I've had multiple Commander Nights canceled. I saw three different Tesa, brand new Tesa Karlov decks. Ooh, nice. Uh, yeah, it, it, so like it wasn't just, you know, one person that was inspired. It was basically everybody was inspired to build Tesa. Uh, and she's very good. Um, You're the, welcome, the decks, Planet Earth. Even, yeah, like, even in their untuned state, you know, first go, first try. She was really effective out of the box. Yeah, I, I've also put together a Tesa list. I'm sort of taking the small hints that we uh, did from our Tesa show. I really like the tokens build that I was going for, and I'm taking some of the cards that Matt had suggested as well. It's just nice to see how diverse she can be, which also means that you're never going to be unentertained whenever she's around. That's very true. My, my challenge of stats actually this week is, is a Tesa pick. Ooh, gotta love the suspense. You're welcome. I have two fun stories for you guys as well. Well, the first one actually is kind of a sad story from a game I recently played where my Lord Windgrace got hit with a Windgrace's judgment. Hmm. And I was very ironically sad <laughs> about was, it. That was flavorful. It was, it wasn't technically flavorful, um, but it just, it hurt my feelings. And it made me afraid to play any Planeswalkers in the future. Like, if I play Vraska, is it going to be hit with Vraska's Contempt? If I play Liliana, is it going to be attacked by Liliana's Reaver? Like, just made me very, very uncomfortable in that and very, very sad. Uh, but probably my favorite story this week, just a, a fun joke that occurred. A buddy of mine has a bunch of decks that he has actually themed around movies just because he can. So, for example, he has a Daxos Returned deck and he has called it the Sons of the Harpy after Game of Thrones. Or he's got a mono green Ronus deck, which is all about using fight spells because Ronus is indestructible and has death touch. And he calls that one Fight Club. Uh, an Oakhound and Zindersplit deck that he just made, he's making that I make my own luck, sort of quoting from uh, The Dark Knight, which I think is really funny. Um, I've joined in on this a couple of times too for example i tried my hand at lazav and that was also a game of thrones reference with jock and hagar the faceless man like we just have fun in little ways like that recently he's built rakdos the showstopper and the go-to thing that i expected this one to be was a thanos theme because whenever rakdos enters approximately half of everything on the field is probably going to perish which was really hysterical but he pulled a really funny one on me instead of quoting thanos when he played his rakdos he started he started singing The Greatest Showman because Rakdos is the showstopper. Nice. I was not prepared for it, but it distracted me so much that he was able to do quite a lot of nasty stuff because I just wasn't even thinking I was laughing so hard. And it easily won him that game. What song did he sing? Did, did he sing This is The, the Greatest, greatest Showman? Show. Okay. Oh, See, yeah. As soon as it the, came down. It's not even the best song, though. I just I was so not ready for it and i found it very very deeply entertaining um and it was also just kind of fun like just a neat exercise if you want to like try and theme your decks around other creative things like that i find it to be pretty entertaining and especially like very disarming because i was not ready for some of that and it's very very humorous rakdos jackman that's that's his new uh <laughs> new title new surname 
Anyway, those are just fun quips from recent experiences, but I think we should get into that main topic about new cards. The sort of different steps and procedures that happen whenever new sets come out, new commander decks come out, whether we get entire new products or individual cards, how we make decisions, little bits here and there. Dana, this was a show topic that you had suggested, so if you want to get us started talking about what had sort of inspired the idea. Sure. And I kind of touched on this a little bit last week when we were talking to Gavin. But it's kind of two different things, two different people I talked to briefly about it. First of all um, was DJ from Jumbo Commander, and I had him on my other show, Commander Central, and we were kind of talking about updating decks because he has a really huge collection. At one point in time, he was closing in on 30 decks, and he's now cut that He's cut that down. But So in, in talking about that, one of the questions I wanted to know was, like, how do you maintain that many decks? How do you update them, keep them current, you know, when a new set comes out? And one of the things he said that surprised me was he doesn't update decks until a set's been out six, eight, ten months sometimes. He goes back then and says, okay, what cards have performed? Have I seen other people use? Have dropped enough in price that, you know, it's worth picking up? So for the most part, he doesn't make changes to decks, particularly off new sets, until one has been out for, you know, X amount of months. And then we're having a conversation about the same thing in... The commander in Discord and Shivam mentioned just talking about upgrading decks. Basically, he does the same thing. He's like once a year, he'll go through and say, okay, there have been four or five sets that have been out with new cards or reprints that are available now that you know weren't affordable before. What do I want to add? And that that kind of flummoxed me. Like I was genuinely shocked because I, for whatever reason, assumed people handled it the same way I did, which was being obsessive. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yeah. That honestly, though, that lines up with my experience. That is to say, your experience lines up with my experience. I I will go over decks constantly, sometimes weekly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I just I, I want to then have that conversation with you guys, and maybe hopefully the listeners can get something back from this too, and see like the different ways people maintain their decks, and see which of those things resonates with you. Yeah. So, Dana, you and I, we probably obsess over it quite a lot. Real quick, Matt, what's the frequency at which you think you personally update or you know make switches in decks and things like that? My frequency, I would say, is pretty close to DJ. Uh, I'm a slow adapter. I, I find my things that I like and I kind of revisit them. Maybe not every six months, but it, it's pretty close to that, I would say. Yeah, I... I I like to see what happens with the new standard sets or reprints. Reprint sets, I try to get stuff in usually a week or two after they come out just because there's usually stuff that, like Shivam observed, prices are low. It's easy to get on them. So do that and find a deck for it later because I would rather pay 10 bucks and have it sit around for a couple months than pay 20 bucks later. I do that with a lot of reprints, but as far as new cards go, it's actually really weird because I've built... Two decks with the last two standard sets. I built Niv-Mizzet, Perrin, and Tasa Karlov, which is more than I've built in a long time, probably, as far as when a new commander comes out, plus Moldrotha that I have, which actually we can talk about later because I just redid that deck. Yeah, I I would say it's probably about six months or so that I'll, I'll pick up a couple cards for decks and, and revisit them. Some decks, I, I don't think I've touched my Omnath deck or changed a single card in it probably in a year. So it like just that depends give, on the deck. That would give me a twitch. Like my eye, like, like I can't even <laughs> comprehend. That's fine. Yeah, I'm 
I'm with Dana here. I really, it, I won't even say that like I go over them religiously or whatever, but there, I, I do. Whenever there's a new set, I like to be on the ball with it. I really like to get those new cards and acquire them pretty quick. So just like as a, you know, instead of talking about it nebulously, maybe we can go to a recent example. So Guilds of Ravnica and Ravnica Allegiance. Dana, are there cards there that you've added to decks from that particular set? And maybe a note on how they've performed as well. Like, what's the the general procedure been like ever since those sets came out? Um, sure. So first, I will I will kind of maybe backtrack a little bit and, and say I do have a process when new sets come out, and this is probably a little bit unnecessarily complicated, but. I, I intentionally block off like an hour of my day on Friday mornings when spoilers are going to come out. Like I know what time it's at 10 o'clock my time that this full spoiler list is released. I make sure I don't have any meetings at that point in time at work. I make sure I have nothing <laughs> on my block going on. Like seriously, I do. And I, I even like I put on my headphones and tell my coworkers I'm working on something and I am. I'm working on spoiler list. So that full spoiler list comes out and I just start going down every individual card and I have like a spreadsheet open and I'm you have spreadsheets? I, yes. And I and I'm immediately making notes. Word. Okay. Smothering tithe, you know, because I've had particularly smothering tithe, okay, that was spoiled for like three or four days and I knew it was a good card. But now that the full spoiler list is out, I want to make sure there's nothing else. So I'll, I'll add any cards that I'm interested in. And I'll have a whole list of them, and then I'll start figuring out what decks might want them. And then I'll have another column where I'll start putting in potential cards that I might remove for those. And then I have that, that sits for like three or four days where I just kind of have it there and available for me to like ponder, okay, I've decided Smothering Tide is going in these three decks. These are my potential changes. And I kind of sleep on it and think about it. But within three or four days, those cards are in a deck, even if it's a mock-up. You know, if I don't happen to get one at a pre-release... I might sometimes just print out a proxy to run for a week to test it. But yeah, I'm I'm blocking off time to ponder those changes immediately, and I'm making them within days. That is very, very involved. My process <laughs> isn't nearly that meticulous, but I do think you're on to pretty wise moves there because the worst thing that you could do is buy a bunch of cards right off the bat and then end up not actually running them. Well, particularly too, like right. That's that's a good point because when you're talking about making changes very quickly, you're you're overspending on cards for the most part. If I'm picking up a smothering tithe, very often I'm spending more on that card that first week than I'm going to spend on it in three weeks or three months or ten months. So if that's the case, and if you're doing that, you probably better be sure what you're going to do with that card because you are just wasting money otherwise. I feel personally attacked right now, you guys. <laughs> Our our habits are definitely different than yours. That is that is for darn sure. So maybe just as a concrete example from like you know uh, Guilds of Ravnica and Ravnica Allegiance, that like those sets had quite a lot of changes for me. And I since a lot of the cards were very very cheap, usually on the cheaper cards, like those will be ones that I go out and buy a bunch of singles to get. If anything's above five dollars, I'm not gonna touch it. I'll see if I need to trade it, or I'll do Dana what you mentioned and maybe proxy it up before I actually make a commitment to it because I want to see if it actually performs the way I think that it might. But like, you know, just general things here and there, there were a bunch of things that I was looking for uh, that came out in in guilds and in allegiance. And it 
I'm really happy with a lot of the changes so far. So, for example, uh, Marin actually was probably one of the decks that got the most tweaks. Guardian Project, the one that draws you cards whenever creatures enter the battlefield. Well, Marin has a lot of creatures entering and leaving the battlefield constantly. Plaguecrafter, really, really famous. That one went right in there as well. Vindictive Vampire I'm trying out. I did try out Izoni. Wasn't as impressed with it, but I did at least try it out, and it was not very expensive to do. Midnight Reaper was another one that went right in because it fuels Marin for more and more cards. There were just a ton of cards. Simic Ascendancy was great for my plus one, plus one counter, Rayhan and Ishai deck. Uh, Smothering Tithe went in nearly every deck that had white in it, with the exception of Edgar Markov, because Edgar Markov is, you know, really low to the ground. But even he got some other stuff that I wanted to try out, like Theater of Horrors and Unbreakable Formation. Um, and Pitiless Pontiff was another one as well. So, like, there were a lot of little tweaks here and there. But one of the things that I think is important about that is that it's kind of a weird dynamic to describe, but it wasn't as though those particular decks like Marin and Edgar and all them, I didn't have cards that I was looking to remove. I just had cards that I wanted to add. And that's one of the weirdest parts about adding in new cards is that like so frequently I love every single one of the cards. I want to make it a 200 card deck so that I can fit in every single card that I want to play. I don't usually have cards that I'm like anxious to get rid of. I just happen to have, oh, Marin has four new cards that I want to try out. And then it's painstaking to try and remove what cards there will be. So like, how do you guys go about that when a big influx of new cards comes at you? How do you go about deciding what doesn't get to make the cut anymore? A little bit for me. So for example, when... Guilds of Ravnica came out. Uh, I had my Mary deck and I updated probably about a month or two. Actually, this was the quickest I adapted any new cards. Um, I put five new cards in Mary, which that's a decent chunk of cards from one set or at one time, I guess, because there were two battle bond cards. I look at what the deck is and try to get the, the big picture. Uh, one thing that I always do is I try to zoom out as much as possible and kind of check out the landscape. Um, so Crush Contraband was one that I thought the upside just in that deck specifically, I'm always trying to do things on the opponent's turns, like whether it's Glare of Subduel, anything like that. So I was trying to speed everything up. Conclave Tribunal I put in there because I have a lot of tapping shenanigans, uh, whenever a creature becomes tap type of effects. Uh, and then Camaraderie I talked about on the podcast before. It was just a, a draw effect that I wanted to try out. That probably actually will get cut, but that's something that I'm still kind of giving it some time. But then it finally took listening to Dana ramble on and on and on about Piers Whim to put that in. Um, but I finally gave it a try, and, and it's been super fun. I think I actually told you guys when I finally got to cast it. And then Vigor, just because I needed something big and top-end that wasn't a feel-bad like Crater Hoof. So it just kind of, I weighed everything out. Uh, I looked at what the deck was doing and what I, what I had that wasn't necessarily the most fun thing that I could be doing. And I tried to play around that and find something else that could be fun, like a Vigor, like a Camaraderie, like a big splashy spell that is it going to be high upside? Sure. Uh, but is it? I might get blown out by it every now and then too. So I try to kind of take it step by step and, and look at the overall deck. What is it doing and what can I do? Maybe that's going to be more fun for other people to play against. That's the big thing that I, I try to keep in mind is I don't want anything in my decks to be super oppressive or like, oh, well, Matt did this again. Wah, wah. Uh, that's why I don't have Dictative Erebos in my Taysa Karlov deck. Uh, so I try to make sure everything's coming from a standpoint of fun. Maybe I don't always get the most efficient cards in there. But yeah, I, I it works for me. 
So Dana, how about you? When you have an influx of new cards, what do you do to help compare and you know figure out what should be cut? So I, I, I put the card, like I said, I, I have like a spreadsheet and I'll put the card, okay, I'm thinking about adding this to this deck and these are the cards that I think maybe could come out and usually I try to try to do two things there. Most of the time I'm trying to replace one type of card with another similar one. So for an example, when Assassin's Trophy comes out, I want to put it in my Ghost of the Trader deck because it looks like it's a good removal spell. So then my goal there is I probably I'm probably going to be replacing another removal spell with that one because presumably my deck is already kind of balanced in a way that I like in terms of how much removal and ramp and draw and what have you I have. So I'm usually looking to replace a similar type card or basically being or upgrading, you know, one to the other. So I want it to be a similar card, and usually, if at all possible, I want it to be of a lower, of a higher CMC. So in the case of that Glissa deck, I had a Putrefy, and Assassin's Trophy is coming out. Well, that's a that's a perfect swap there. Assassin's Trophy is also a removal spell. It costs one mana less. That made for kind of an easy eyeball to say, well, there's the obvious replacement in that deck is pulling Putrefy, putting in Assassin's Trophy. So that's. Like, that is a great habit, I think, to, like, you know, sort of switch things across. But I got to confess, I'm terrible about that. Like, when a new removal spell comes out, I might not necessarily replace an old removal spell. Because in my brain, it feels like those old removal spells are still just as good as they always were. So I don't want to get rid of any of them. Uh, A really good example is probably Plague Crafter. Plague Crafter is a strictly better, unless you're looking at creature types, maybe. But it's definitely better than uh, Fleshbag Marauder and Merciless Executioner. But I didn't remove either of those when I wanted to put Plague Crafter into my Marin deck. I went with something else entirely, and to be honest, I can't even remember what it was, because I knew that since that card is there now, I wanted to have a greater density of those types of effects. They're all still very, very good, especially in that deck, and having a greater density means only better things for me. So that's just something that I notice myself doing. If I you know, want to add in a card draw spell, I might actually remove a big bomb, because the card draw spell will help me dig closer to the other bombs that I still have in the deck. Or, here's a really great example actually, the Unbreakable Formation card. I put that into Edgar Markov recently. I want to test out how it works, and that's the one that gives your team indestructible, and if you cast it on your turn, the addendum will give uh, your stuff like a plus one plus one and vigilance for the turn as well. Not only did I include that one into the Edgar Markov deck to try and, you know, help mitigate the Totokin army from any board wipes, but I also went out of my way to find other cards like uh, Rootborn Defenses that also might amp up the amount of defense that I have in that deck at the same time. So sometimes adding in a card doesn't mean that I'll make a switch with another similar card. Like, you know, I wasn't going to replace Boros Charm with the uh, Unbreakable Formation. Instead, I ended up including even more. So I've got Boros Charm, Deferi's Protection, Rootborn Defenses, and the Unbreakable Formation. And maybe even something else that I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Like, sometimes adding in those cards makes me even more hyper-conscious of their effects. And then I will try and put even more of them in there to have a greater density of them. See, I, I kind of side with Dana on this one. I, I have my certain number of cards in whatever category, whether it's removal, card draw, utility, win conditions, etc. I try to keep everything. So if I'm replacing a win condition card, I'm doing it with a win condition. Um, in my Niv-Mizzet deck, for example, I took I don't remember what card I took out. It was some big, derpy creature, but I put in Nezahal Primal Tide because uh, that card's been making a, little, you know, a couple waves in standard. I totally forgot it was a card. But it fits in perfectly with Niv-Mizzet because it's it's hard to remove. It's going to draw me tons of cards. 
Uh, same thing, I took out Windfall and instead put in Winds of Change just because it's a cheaper, more efficient, and I get to draw a ton of cards over Windfall, which is just a little more expensive. So all of those cards that I tend to replace usually fall in the same category as what is getting taken out of the deck uh, as what I put in. Yeah, I mean, like I'm not entirely married to having to do that. Like There are situations I absolutely can envision where I would have not replaced a removal spell with Assassin's Trophy. I just, you know, sometimes it lines up perfectly, and if it does, that's great. If it doesn't, that's not the end of the world either. Sometimes you do wind up replacing a ramp spell with a draw spell or what have you. I think that more happens for me, not when a new set comes out, but that just kind of happens over the course of time. If it's if it's a new card that's just coming out, it's usually replacing something of the similar vein. Yeah, and I think there are some pretty direct examples. Like we've mentioned how much we like Crush Contraband before, and that can certainly just be a quick swap for Return to Dust. But sometimes, you know, these cards will come out, like Assassin's Trophy, I think, is a great example. And it would be really easy to just swap the Putrefy with an Assassin's Trophy. But then there's also Status and Statue that came out as well, which is kind of a more diverse Putrefy, but it's four mana instead of three or instead of two in the case of Assassin's Trophy. Like, in these instances, you've got, again, greater density of those effects and they're all really good and if i'm playing black green and i'm looking for removal spells then i'm drawn to all three of them and it's very tough to only include one and say that it wins above all of the rest i know that assassin's trophy is amazing but if all of those cards are good then they all warrant consideration for me so that's what makes it so difficult i really enjoy having a lot of similar effects across all of my cards and it's a cool thing just how much redundancy is in the format now uh, we when we talk about how you know there's only one X card, but now there's several cards. There's there's not just a uh, Playcrafter. You have two other versions of Playcrafter, and there used to be one not you know five years ago. Um, so it's just cool seeing the format get to the point where if you want one of any, you know any given effect, you can probably get two or three at least, maybe even four. Well, and that's also, Matt, that's something that you've mentioned about uh, you know when we had our Boris episode ages ago the density of types of cards in your deck really, really does matter. And that's one of the strengths that a red or a white deck has in a 60 card format, because they get to have four copies of each of those effects, which allows them to be more consistent in their aggression. And that's why probably I'm so drawn to having similar cards and a density of those effects, because I feel as though that makes my deck more consistent and therefore more powerful. Yep. If, if yeah, if something's going to be powerful, why not put another powerful card in that's going to do the exact same thing? Right. The problem is just that then I have to figure out what I need to yank out of the deck. And other, that procedure yeah, is pretty tough. powerful thing do you have to not do because you want to do this other powerful thing? And yeah, you can almost get a random pile of 100 cards at this point and there's still going to be some cool stuff in there. And, and, and sometimes you do too. Sometimes there's just a deck where you have where you're like, this card has just been underperforming. So you just have an, an obvious swap, even if they're not like a true, you know, removal for removal, draw for draw kind of exchange. Sometimes you have that deck where you're like, man, this this one card has just not been getting the job done and I don't want it in the deck anymore. So that's the one that's getting pulled out. Like that just happens sometimes too. So here, here's a question for you, Dana. Like a card that's underperforming, how do you measure that? Because that's another really big, difficult task. Like how often do you have to play that card and note how well it's performing or or something like that before you actually put a card on the bench for possible cut? I don't have a hard and fast number there. One thing I have become conscious of is you have to have actually had it in hand and had a chance to play it. Like there, I think we've all had those cards where you add it to a deck, and then like six weeks later, like, man, this card hasn't done anything for me. 
And then you think about it and you're like, okay, well, I've drawn it once in that six right. weeks because that just mm-hmm. happens sometimes. Um, so like you have to actually have had it in hand. You have to be conscious of that and be aware that maybe the card is not getting anything done because you just haven't seen it. Like, for example, I've seen Smothering Tithe, I mean, probably six or seven times in my in my games, and I have not yet at all seen Wilderness Reclamation. It's just not mm-hmm. popped up at all. And I put it in, I think, two decks, and I just, have not, I just haven't seen it. I'm sorry, a, a Guardian Project, not Wilderness Reclamation. The green, oh, okay. the green draw spell. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I have that in two decks, and, and I, it's just not popped up in either of those decks, just period. So Smothering Tithe stands out as an all-star, but I think part of that is because I've just seen it a ton versus Guardian Project, which is just hiding at the bottom of my deck every time for some reason. So mentally separate those two things because that does happen. But I think that the two things that jump out at me, there are cards that, number one, you have them in your hand and you find that they just are dead. Like there's the situation for you to cast that card, it like doesn't exist. Like there's nothing right now to, to use that card for. And I think if that happens a notable amount of times, you need to be kind of eyeballing that card and saying, why is it in the deck then if I'm finding myself unable to play it fairly frequently? And the second yeah. one is even if a card may be good, I still sometimes find myself not wanting to cast it. And, and I encountered that with abundance in my Reki History Kamigawa deck. I just found, even though like I was eyeballing the board and I'm like, abundance would be perfectly fine to play right now because next turn, you know, I'm going to get to name creature and not have to draw land or something. I just have other things to use that four mana on this turn. And I found myself in that position multiple times with abundance where I was holding it in my hand and I didn't want to cast it because that four mana felt like so much for that effect. And I've since replaced that with cream of the crop, which kind of does a similar thing for two mana. And I've found whenever I've seen cream of the crop in my hand, it doesn't feel like a burden for that turn. So that's, that's the other thing for me that jumps out is number one, does, is the card feel dead? Number two, do you just not want to cast it for whatever reason? Yeah. I, I, you kind of stole my point that I was going to say with your second one, how many times, and I, I'm sure if people counted the, the amount of times that they had a card in hand and they spent two turns or more where they didn't cast it in lieu of other cards that they even drew later, uh, I think people would be surprised with how many times they're sitting on a card and they would rather cast other things. I mean, take out counter spells, obviously, because that's a little hard to game plan around, but something proactive. Um, would you rather cast an Abundance or a Sylvan Library, or would you rather cast an Abundance or what have you? That's a really good way to look at it. I, I like that. How just and I can I can think of probably four or five times in the past year that I've had cards in my hand that I might have had it in my opening hand and I passed on casting it four or five turns. Yeah. Here's the here's the example for that Matt that popped up to me and, and I mentioned this on Twitter and you responded to it, but Ethereal Absolution, which was mm-hmm. in Ravnica Allegiance, I think that's a really cool card. I like Ethereal Absolution and I put it in a deck. However, what I've discovered is I most want the minus one, minus one from that card. Like whenever I've had it in hand, I've looked at the board and thought, man, I want to play it right now to give minus one, minus one. And I think all three times I was not at six mana. And all three times I was thinking, man, I I wish this was a Pestilence or a Night of Souls Betrayal. I want to play it now for the minus one, minus one versus waiting two turns to also get the buff. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a fair way to approach it too. Like you're looking at it for, for one specific effect, and if it's a big, right. crazy card like that, there, there's other chances that you're going to be able to get that specific effect. Maybe not on that card, but 
you might be able to save a couple of mana. You lose some of the utility, some of the versatility in it. But I mean, it's not gonna not gonna break now, the card. Yeah. Now I'll give it another three or four weeks, and we'll see what happens. Because maybe I will find out that the next three times I draw it, that isn't the case. But mm-hmm. I've got my eye on it. Like I'll be wondering if that's going to continue to be a trend or not. See, I'm again pretty different here. To be honest, it can be like I see a card twice kind of underperform and it can immediately go to the chopping block for me (laughs) like uh i but then again that might be a symptom of changing the decks pretty frequently like i said i might go over them weekly so i'm like constantly shifting to evaluate how i feel about each of those cards but even if i see a card like you know it comes out twice and i'm like huh i don't know that this entirely worked like that's all that it really took for me to decide that phyrexian arena was kind of slowing me down when i compare it to something like a one-shot effect of painful truths like it it had that effect like maybe twice across a couple of games and i was like huh you know it would have been better here and then i could immediately make a swap like that like it's i'm i'm probably a bit too impulsive when it comes to i feel as though now it's the time to try out something new um and and make a cut like that so Joey, instead of like carefully measuring the card's performance over a long period of time so how many times in a typical game night joey do you finish up a game and you just look at a card like this card sucks. You take it out instantly, swap it with something else, and then you say, and you shuffle up again. All right, we're playing again because I don't want to play that card. I want to play something else and try it. How many times do you just impulsively zero, swap out? Zero. I'm not a petulant child, but after the game night, I'll go back and I'll look over the cards and I'll say, huh, what really stuck out? as being an overperformer and what stuck out as an underperformer like that's a really fun ritual for me actually whenever i get home i might take a quick glance through all the decks that i played that evening and say you know what was my mvp and what was my lvp what you know felt like won me games that maybe i didn't expect was going to win me that game and what got in my way yeah i mean i absolutely do that joey i don't i don't sit and look at the list or anything but like when i come home from commander night the, the 20 minutes I'm lying in bed before I fall asleep, I'm absolutely reviewing games in my head and thinking about, okay, this card didn't get the job done. Is that a trend? Now, well, okay, I don't know if it is, so I'll let it go another week and see what happens. But I've got my eye on it now. And then I'll mm-hmm. think, okay, this card I drew and it was a dud and it's been a dud two weeks in a row. It's just time to replace it with something else. So what could I replace it with? I'll have to make, take a look tomorrow and make a list. How about this card? This one jumped out at me as being a star. Do I want it in a second deck? So like I'm I'm mentally going over my games and thinking about cards I saw that night and what jumped out at me and and what changes I may want to make. So yeah, I'm I'm doing review immediately. And you know what's also helpful is after the games asking the rest of the table what cards you know, jumped out in your deck that maybe they felt were easy for them to deal with and were difficult for them to deal with. Like that can also be a really big point because that's like I mentioned, I had been trying Azoni in Marin and I'd gotten Azoni out with a respectable number of her insect tokens. But everyone that I was playing against was kind of like, yeah, when we when you've got that one on the field, we didn't feel all that threatened versus when I played Guardian Project, they were like, yeah, that drew you more cards than my Rhystic study drew me cards. I had my eye on that the whole game. And that was not something I had necessarily even noticed because I just wasn't necessarily paying attention in that way. I was focusing on different parts of the game and worrying about my opponent's permanence that maybe I wasn't paying attention too much to the way that my cards were affecting me. But seeing how my cards affect my opponents, that's a really helpful lens too. That's a really good tip for a lot of people that I think is underappreciated is ask other people how any given card that you're trying out affected what they thought of how it did. Because everyone here on the podcast knows somebody, you know, sometimes you're just going to be biased towards a certain card. You want a certain card to work. 
So you're going to have that, you know, that lens about it. Asking other people, man, what was the most powerful card that I cast that game? They'll be honest with you most of the time, unless they just don't want to see it again and they're hoping you take it out. But <laughs> that's but yeah, shady. Talk, yeah, talk to your talk to your friends, talk to your buddies, and say, "Man, what, what was the card that you didn't want to see me play again?" Well, the other good version of that same thing too is, particularly if you're playing with friends that you trust, lend them your deck and play against your own mm-hmm. deck. Getting that perspective on your deck and being across the table and seeing, oh, that card is really, really strong, and I didn't realize it until I was across the table from it. Or the, the inverse happens sometimes, too, where somebody plays a thing that you think is a bomb, and across the table you're like, oh, that, that is really easy to play around. And the, the best way to do that is to, to actually face it yourself. Yeah, that's actually how I learned the power of the card Aura of Silence. Three mana white enchantment that makes all artifacts and enchantments your opponents cast cost two more, and you can sacrifice it whenever you want to destroy an artifact or enchantment. Every so often when I'm going through a deck, I'm like, huh, does this really need to be there? And then I played against my own deck and someone ran that out and I was like, wait, I can do literally nothing ever now. This has completely hampered my ability to play my cards and to guarantee their safety at all points. This is horrifying. And now for me, it's just a mono white staple. Like I need to play that card because I've faced against it. And like when you're actually putting it onto the battlefield, it seems innocuous. But when you're the person staring across the table at it and it's taxing all of your stuff and it could destroy anything at any moment, it's crazy. So having that other perspective is so super helpful. Yeah. We, I mean, Dana's mentioned that a couple of times about cards like Seal of Primordium, the secretly modal cards. Sure, you can use it mm. right away to blow something up, or you can deter somebody from playing something more. That's a really underrated aspect. And yeah, you're on, you're on fire today, Joey. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I appreciate it. But yeah, the the perspective is super helpful. Matt, you'd mentioned something earlier as well that I thought was kind of interesting. You said that you hadn't touched your Omnath deck in like probably a year, which makes Dana's eye twitch (laughs) and makes me feel like I'm going crazy. But it kind of does beg the question, are there specific decks that you tune up more than other decks, you think? Yes. So and and Omnath is a pretty specific deck. Try to keep it as efficient as possible with all of its ramp. I mean, it's kind of a one trick pony when you think about it it ramps makes tokens and ramps so two trick pony but it really just depends on the deck and and what my goal for the deck is as well uh if i want a deck to be a little more cutthroat and a little more serious you know in case somebody you know shows up and you know has their their tuned i'm gonna try hard everybody at the table i like having a deck with me of 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 varying power levels so i always try to keep one deck that's a little more tuned a little more powerful which currently is my niv mizzet deck uh, so that deck I do recircle, and I've I've looked at cards from the new sets. I haven't put much in there recently, but it just depends on the deck. If it's something fun like my Omnath deck, which is kind of it, it's my longest living deck, I'm not too worried about updating that and trying to keep that fresh because it's a deck that I still very much enjoy. But if it's something that I want to keep powerful, keep tuned as efficient as possible, do the the high floor, low ceiling like Dana always talks about. Then I might revisit it more often. Uh, Niv Mizzet, like I said, that's probably the best example of a, of a deck that I look and see what can I what can I add to it. Mary, not so much that one. I like being very Selesnia in flavor. So of course, when Guilds of Remnica came out, I was I was very excited to see all the cool green white cards that kind of fit into the strategy that I already had. So for me, a lot of it depends on the goal of the deck. If it's a tribal deck like Edgar Markov, that deck hadn't changed in a lot or in a while because sure the Ixalan cards came out right after the, the commander precon 
But once I made all those changes, there aren't very many vampires that come out very often that are going to make an impact in an Edgar Markov deck. So that one, I didn't really want to keep it stagnant, but it just happened to be that way. And that was the reason I took it apart because it was a deck that I wanted to keep tuning, but you don't have very many opportunities to do so with a, a focused deck like that. So a few factors that go into it, but I would say the biggest one is what my goal for the deck happens to be and how competitive I want it to be. Dana, how about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I will say also, when we're talking about tweaking and tuning decks here, I'm talking about things, generally speaking, on a really low level. Like, every deck that I have that isn't running a Mana Crypt is probably going to be a better deck with a Mana Crypt. Like, those aren't the kind of changes I'm thinking about. I'm just inten- I'm just not running Mana Crypts in my decks, for the most part, because I'm not. So, I- I'm thinking about things that are real kind of in the margins specifically. Like, okay, this card, I can get something that's slightly better just in the margins by, by upgrading to this. So that's one thing I wanted to note here is when I'm talking about tweaking my decks and making these changes, it's at that level. It's not like, well, I'm going to turn this Worn Power Stone into a Grim Monolith. I mean, obviously that's a change that would be better, but that's not really the kind of thing I'm looking at. As for whether or not there are decks I update more often than others, not especially. I'm just kind of always looking at them for the most part. I probably touch my... Um, Edric's Five Master of Tress deck way less than the rest just because I don't play it that often and it probably is the most tuned of all my decks. Um, so that one just doesn't get tweaked because it's such a specific deck. You know, occasionally a new one mana creature with evasion will come out and I'll put that in the deck, but there's not a better version of, you know, Guy's Cradle coming out that I want to run in that deck. So that one gets touched the least just because it's kind of quote unquote finished. The rest of them though, like, if a deck of mine goes two weeks without a change, that would be unusual. So I figured the, wow. your Recce deck would have gotten the, the least amount of change. Just like I said, in, in my experience with something themed or tribal, that seems to get the least amount of updating because the cards tend to be so specific. So you saying that you update Recce, what sounds like fairly often, kind of surprises me. Yeah, I mean, there's always something, there's always some little nudge I can give here or there. Like, you know, I, I'm not happy with a balance of creatures, so I'm going to add in one creature and remove a ramp spell. And yeah, there's always pieces that can be moved around, at least in my head. Whether or not they actually make a difference, I guess, I don't know. But there's always something, I, there's always a knob I can turn somewhere. Well, and I also think that's kind of an important thing to note because adding in one card can have ripple effects on the entire deck. Like as a really basic example, I'm building, you know, the face of Karlov. Matt and I both put a list together. I'm currently interested in trying out the card Boreas Charger, which says when it leaves the battlefield, if someone else has more planes or excuse me, more lands on you, you can go get a planes. And Tesa would then double that trigger if it were to die. I'm interested in that particular card, but if I were to add that one in, would it affect the other types of ramp that I have going on in that deck? If, for example, I'm running Wayfarer's Bobble, well, that goes and finds me a land, but then would that offset the number of lands that I would potentially be able to go and double fetch with the Boreas Charger? Like, it seems like just such an easy thing to swap in a single card, but it can affect entire categories of your deck, which is why probably I build so categorically like with the removal spells like we were talking earlier. Uh, and, and that's just like a really important thing to note down when a single card can actually have huge ramifications on the deck. So here, here's a question that Dana and Joe, you just got me thinking of it too, is how many times do you guys make a change and then undo it a couple weeks later? You put that card back in that you just took out. 
That's an every other, every other, every other, every other week. That is a constant thing. <laughs> but but genuinely, though, probably the deck that I update most often. Well, so there are two answers to this. I update Marin quite a lot because there's a dynamic to that that I could go for if I wanted to have it a very low to the ground style deck. For example, running maybe a bunch of mana dorks because those mana dorks, while they're fragile and they could die, well, that would just give me more experience counters with Marin. And then I'd be able to ramp up really quickly into a bunch of experience counters and then every turn i'd be resummoning one big huge creature from the graveyard alternatively i could go a bit more slow and steady wins the race and instead of ramping up to a bajillion uh, experience counters to get back really big creatures i could you know take my time a little bit more and go for some of the okay i'll revive a two drop okay i'll revive a three drop okay i'll revive a three drop over the course of the game so that can constantly just shift every couple of weeks or so because i want to try out one strategy and see how it compares to the strategy that i, pr- I tried out the previous week uh just as a fun aside the other deck that i update most often is going to be kaneos and tiro but that's something we've mentioned on the cast before i do that one on purpose even if i wasn't religious about updating my decks in the way that i am like i go over them a bunch weekly that particular one is really fun because i intentionally switch the win conditions in that deck every week to try and keep other players on their toes to be like oh who knows how he's going to be winning this this week is he bimbling people out with a keening stone or is he going to insurrection us who knows so that's kind of a fun thing but to get back to your question matt like yeah honestly it's constant i will change a thing and its entire strategy from week to week um it does happen for me too matt um one of the things i do is i tend to log the changes i make so i know okay i pulled out you know you are so meticulous dana <laughs> yes you, you are Sorry. so much for, more into this than <laughs> i yeah for me it's like being. a gut feeling type of thing and you're just like no i have to do the exact math like you like you're the the don miner of this entire well, process <laughs> making entire websites and measuring statistics about it i'm so surprised some of those i mean I, but like that becomes part of the game for me like that's fun for me for whatever weird reason i enjoy doing that so i'll i'll log you know okay my glyphs of the trader deck i'm going to take out nemesis mask um, because, you know, it's a lot of mana, doesn't always work great, and I'm going to try something else. And then I'll, I'll make that note. I'm pulling it out because it hasn't performed well. And then, you know, six weeks later, I'll be making some other change because this other card isn't doing great. I'll look at my list. And I'm like, man, I kind of want to try Nemesis Mask again because I think I might have had a bad run where I was playing against Planeswalker decks where it wasn't really doing much good, and I want to try it again. So I'll cycle it back in. So that does, cards absolutely get cycled back in. Particularly when you have a list you're going to look at, like I, I always, when I when I take a card out of a deck, I do put it in like a slush list so I can look at that and say what have I taken out recently, and there's cards that I want to maybe try also in there, so I, I do have that I can look at and pull information from. So yeah, it absolutely does happen. Well, and and there are also times where I'll add in a card, which means that I had to take out some, you know, I I added in X card, which means I had to take out Y card. But then, you know, a few days pass and I feel bad about the card Y. And so I'm like, no, I I, I can't do that. And so then I'll go back before I even had the chance to try out X card. I feel like, no, 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 I I can't. I can't remove card Y. I I need to put that one back in. Um, Maybe I can try something else. I'll, I'll remove card Z now instead. So like that can also be a process for me as well. Like I remove a card thinking maybe I'll try a different direction and then it I just can't go through with it even before i have the chance to play the deck with the new construction yeah no that that all sounds very familiar to me (laughs) to to go back to talking about cascading changes joe you mentioned a few minutes ago one good example of that was when solemnity came out that would have been in it was emma cat block i forget which set and and that's the one that keeps you from putting counters on permanents i I wanted to try that in in, in my sphinx deck in particular 
And I'm like, okay, well, I'm already running Glacial Chasm in that deck, and I'm already running Mystic Remora, so I'll put it in there. It's a way to you know shut down other people's counter stuff. It's going to let me get extra value from that Glacial Chasm and from Remora. That's great. Um, but then the thought process becomes, okay, well, if I'm already going to you know run it, do I want to then put something like Dark Depths in there to take advantage of that extra synergy? Since I already have somebody, why not put Dark Depths in the deck? If I'm going to put Dark Depths in the deck, do I then want to run Thespian Stage? to give me something else that's going to piggyback off Dark Depths. So like you can get those in one individual card that can chain and make mm. you want to make five changes. And then, okay, I'm, if I'm running Solemnity, do I have to take out Everflowing Chalice? Because if Solemnity's out, oh, that's, that's, that's a non-bow. You can't put it into play with counters on it, so it's, it's a dead card. So it, it does oftentimes lead to this into this into this into this. And that's actually one of the reasons I do kind of take notes and log that because I made that change and I did pull Everflowing Chalice out. And then later on when I pulled Solemnity out, I was able to see in my notes, well, that's why Everflowing Chalice is not in the deck anymore, just because of Solemnity. So if Solemnity is gone, well, then I'm going to put Everflowing Chalice back in. So that's a useful thing to do for me. It's not just that I'm taking notes. It's because it helps me remember why I've made a change that cascaded into a change. And then if I want to reverse it, I can reverse multiple steps. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what all those particular yeah, notes Dana are Dana sounds for. like the kid that you would like keep his finger in the page of a choose your own adventure book. And if he didn't oh, like what yeah. he went to, he's like, nope, nope, I'm just going to go back. <laughs> Hold my finger there. I didn't actually pick it. Like, well, that's, the, that's exactly the, what it sounds like. The, that wasn't my entire childhood. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, that resonates with me. The other one I will point out that, do, that does happen, it's a little bit tougher to keep track of with cascading changes, though, is... If you make that swap where, hey, I'm going to pull out this, you know, blue spell for this white spell, and then I'm going to swap out this blue creature for this white creature, you also probably should keep an eye on your deck and verify that over the course of the last three months, you haven't made changes that have skewed what your mana base wants to do. Oh, yes. Now, that's probably less of a big deal for Matt when he's making, like, three changes at once every six months, because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, but, but like, it's visually in front of you then. If you're making that change at once, you could visually see, man, I've just pulled four red cards for four green cards. Clearly, I should eyeball my mana base and see what I have to do. If you're just making one change a week, you can find yourself, you know, six weeks later having radically skewed what your pip count is in that deck. So that's one thing, if you make a lot of changes, you really should keep an eye on. My mana base oh, yeah. actually that, changes the least out of any type of card because I have to have all matching basics. So if I don't have enough basics to, to change my ratio, I just don't do it. What? That could be detrimental, <laughs> sir. I, it's It bugs me. It, I, I've played 60 card formats so much. If I have non-matching basics, can't do it. I'll, I'll suffer oh, for the aesthetics. I, I am on board the matching basics part, which is why when I pick up my uh, matching basics for a deck, I usually grab two or three more than I need for that deck for future use. <laughs> yeah, the the color balance thing can be absolutely huge, though. I mean, that's yeah. always a part of my deck building. I'm not just going over the cards. I also make sure that I revisit the mana base because if I add in more cards with, you know, three black pips like Grave Pact, then maybe I can't run as many colorless lands. But also just like swapping three cards could tip the blue in favor of green or the white in favor of black or something. And that affects that also affects the mana rocks that I play. Exactly. In fact, not just the basic lands yeah. that I'll play, but like the mana rocks. The Rayhan and Ishai deck is probably a great example of this. Do I use the signets there? And should I use signets that do have green in them? Because then I 
you know, otherwise, if I did, if I did have green mana at that time, I'd be able to cast something like a Farseek or a Cultivate. But if I don't have green mana, then I'm going to need a Signet, which will then provide me with green mana. Does that mean that I shouldn't use Azorius Signet, even though one of my commanders is Azorius? You know, do I need to use Azorius and one Golgari because that will then give me the exact color balance for the four colors in the deck? Or should I use one Simic and one Golgari because those are the most representative colors when I look at the two color cards? I have more Simic cards and more Golgari cards than I have of any azorius card or any other two card uh, two color pairing like the mana base and the colors that you're playing and the mana rocks all of that again just cascades and cascades and can go completely crazy so i am like meticulous about that particular thing for sure yeah i i do agree and and i know it's it's fun to joke but i do really appreciate especially my niv mizzet deck that probably made me appreciate not just mana ramp but mana fixing uh as a, a, a an underrated part of something that people just kind of overlook uh, Cold Steel Heart, you guys suggested it. It was a great card. Um, but making sure that you can fix your colors, especially like Joey, you said, I have Grave Pact. That's a very mana intensive card. Do I need to reconsider, you know, instead of playing a Worn Power Stone, do I play a, another Locket or something like that in a deck to make sure I can get all those black pips when I need them? Right. And that could be, like Dana mentioned, something that simply changes over time. And it can be hard to miss if you're not being, you know, if you're not paying very careful attention. But when you add in like, oh, I sweet, I just got a grave pact. You might not realize how much that shifts the colors, you know, especially if you were to replace, you know, grave pact with a white card. Like that's actually a really big color shift, even if it's just one black card and one white card. That's a lot of colored pips. And that can really affect a whole bunch of the other things that happen from there, too. On the subject of lands, how do you guys feel about like land cycles? Like the battle bond lands, those are pretty excellent in most decks that can run them. Is this like a case by case thing, or do you just like put any of those into the decks that can run them? What do you guys do for the land base? Like, because that's also a big space I, that needs a lot of two nuts. It, it does, and and this is one thing we've talked about many many times. Um, even on our budget episode when Andrew came on, he talked about pri- if you're staying on a budget, prioritize your mana base first, so you can cast whatever you want. And people with a cheap mana base, you'll you'll be able to you know outcast them, I guess. But I always start with your shocks, your fetches, uh, pain lands. I, I find are pretty helpful in a lot of situations. And then occasionally I'll I'll throw in the uh, Karoo lands, the Ravnica bounce lands, whatever you want to call them. I'll throw them in every now and then. I'm not a super big fan, uh, but it depends on on how many colors are in the deck. For one, uh, am I going to try to get four or five fetches in a three color deck? Uh, that's a question that I, I find myself on, but I almost always include shocks, a few fetches, pain lands as much as I can get in there, and then a few other budget versions. The check lands are a good one, whether it's the the Innistrad and Dominaria ones or it's the uh, corset check lands. Those are kind of where I start with a majority of my decks. Dana, how about you? First of all, it, it's one thing people often miss out on the enemy color lands are missing a lot more cycles than the ally colored lands yeah mm-hmm. um you know whether it's like new ones where there's there's no enemy version of battle bond lands there's no enemy version of the Emonket cyclers or the battle for zendikar lands which are fetchable um there's no uh enemy version of the old odyssey filter lands or that that weird cycle that was in time spiral that you know where everyone is different at least for four of those, because the, the fifth one became the, the Lorwyn filter lands, but that cycle isn't finished. So you, you do have a pretty big swing in what dual lands are available between enemy color and ally color. I'll say that said, for the most part, I tend to be fairly happy with my mana base in terms of 
how many duels I'm running versus how many basics and utility lands I'm running. So for the most part, when a cycle comes out, it just kills the previous cycle. And when I think of battle bond lands coming out, the battle bond lands in allied colors just basically meant I quit running the Shadows over Innistrad lands. It just killed that land cycle for me. I just replaced straight up. Oh. I just pulled all the Shadows lands and put in battle bond lands, and it was an easy switch. I don't think and I've I, ever been desperate enough to run the Shadows lands. I, uh, I well, <laughs> and, and I admittedly probably don't run enough basics, so that's I you know probably shouldn't have been running them, but. So that's that's that cycle the one way, and I think next time, like if we get another cycle of really playable, you know, ally color lands, that probably kills the fast lands for me, or maybe any man lands I'm running. So usually I can do kind of a one for one swap. Not always, but it, it oftentimes works that way. That's that's so interesting, especially to hear you say that you probably don't run enough basics because I feel as though you've been one of the big champions of paying attention to whether or not Blood Moon exists. Yeah, I mean, I I'm. A hundred percent aware of it, and I'm absolutely greedy and guilty. See, I'm the one that in my Niv Mizzet deck, I play back to basics and Blood Moon in it. So I, of course, play a ton of basics. I, I am the, yeah, I am the dad. Really gotta. I'm the dad who tells his son not to speed, and I'm usually locked in at ten, you know, nine miles over on the freeway. So do as I say, <laughs> not as I do. It's just some people just can't drive fifty-five, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, choosing between land cycles is a lot more painstaking for me because, again, it just goes back to, for me, like, you know, the old lands were good enough. And so now that there's other stuff, I just, I'm going to run more of the cards that are good enough instead of being able to make swaps. That's actually one of the places that's probably harder for me to make switches, especially because, again, it can have that cascading effect. Like, if I'm running enough of the lands that have dual land types, like a Swamp Island, Am I able to run the check lands too? Or do the check lands need to go because now I've reduced the number of basics because I just put in all the battle bond lands into my deck as well? Like that's also actually a very difficult process for me. Yeah, no, I it in it should be harder for me if I ran, you know, less dual lands. <laughs> if I wasn't if I wasn't <laughs> greedy, it would be trickier. I've just succumbed and been like, well, someone's gonna drop a blood moon and that's just it for me. Okay, so kind of a subject shift here, but it does go back to we were talking about, you know, how often it can take before we decide that a particular card is, you know, worth putting on the chopping block. But what about like a full deck? How long does it take for you until an entire deck gets put on the chopping block? So I I guess I could chime in here with my Moldrotha deck Uh, that recently got reshifted. It was kind of combo tastic. It was really fun, but it kind of got played out and I most of the time I found myself going for the you know the same two card combo, so I, I don't know I, I kind of got bored with it, so I retooled it and took pretty much the entire thing apart minus the land base, which I'll probably reconfigure as we're going through. But I turned it into plus one plus one counters instead, which has been a really fun change. But it it takes me getting kind of completely bored with the concept of a deck to want to change it entirely, change the theme of it, change. Uh, the soul of the deck, really. So for me, I think I've only done that and kept the same commander, I should say, once or twice. And, and Moldrotha is, is one of those. Usually if I scrap a deck, I scrap it entirely, get a new commander, just build something else. So if I'm keeping the same commander, but retooling the deck with a different direction, uh, that does not happen very often for me. Usually it's, okay, I'm done with this deck. It had its run. It was fun. But we're going to try something else now, and it's probably completely unrelated. 
I'm very glad to hear when you began that story, I was worried that you were about to tell me that you had taken apart Muldrotha and no longer were using the foil Muldrotha oh, no. No, that no, no, I no, sent no, no. to you. I, I, I think I was about point, to be like Matthew Pennyfeather Elizabeth Morgan. What did you do? You're not using them, <laughs> but you are using the Muldrotha, so it's okay. We don't need to have a harsh first conversation. Off, my it sister ended is well. Elizabeth, so I would <laughs> kindly thank you to respect her her name property. <laughs> but yes, I know. I, I think at this point I could not go out and and play without having my Muldrotha deck on me. But good. I did change the direction, um, and it's been a good change. It's sometimes you just need to facelift a deck. And like we talked about a couple episodes ago, I put I pick out my Moldrotha deck and people are like, oh, great. It's Moldrotha, you know, grind out. We're going to be here for a couple hours. I'm like, nope, nope. We're going to make sure the game gets over quick. I'm not going to I'm not going to be that guy. So that was another thing, too. I just I didn't want to be that Moldrotha player. So that was a big reason why I, I shifted the deck and, and turned it into kind of a fun theme instead of generic Moldrotha ness. That's a really good observation. That's the one that I think resonates most with me, actually. It's not even necessarily whether I get bored with a deck, but if I see that other people have a problem with deck, immediately that's when I'm going to start taking it apart. Precisely. If it's, yeah, like, so for example, I built uh, a Yidris deck a short time ago, and then when I played that deck, it was either operating at zero miles per hour or 100 miles per hour. So either I was having fun or no one was having fun. And as soon as I realized the effect it was having on the table, yeah, I, that deck needed to go and i replaced it with something else entirely that's the effect that makes me most likely to scrap a deck to, to cut the deck out entirely for me i don't think there's any set amount of time but i also don't build decks thinking i'll play it till it stops being fun i have i kind of think of like there's like this canon of decks and at some point a deck may ascend <laughs> into becoming part of that stratified group of decks that are eternal for me and will never go away. And I, I feel like I build a deck and that deck is then fighting to make that leap. And at some point in my head, I don't know you know what those criteria are. I, one of them is definitely that it's fun to play against. One of them is that it's fun for me to play. One of them is usually that it has to be fairly unique as well. And at some point, the deck will just feel correct. And, I'll, and, and I will know it's just never going away. Like this deck has now ascended to become one of you know my canon canonical decks it's just going to be always a deck i play and at some point i'll i'll see with the deck and i'll be like this is just there's no way i ever feel that way about this deck it's just never going to be one that i fall in love with so i'm going to take it apart because why have it if it's if it's never going to make that leap why do i have it in the first place when i can be building something else that might one day make the leap I really like that because you're totally right that this EDH is all about personality. Like this is one of the best formats for self-expression. So that totally makes sense. So piggybacking off of that question then, you know, about scrapping an entire deck, what about pre-cons? That's probably one of the biggest examples of infusing new cards into our format and therefore into our actual decks that we have pre-existing. How long do you wait if you have a precon before you scrap that for parts? Or do you do that right away? Do you play with the precon for a while? What's that process like? It's taken me a while to kind of figure out what my thoughts are on precons, but here's the realization I've made. I just don't like playing a deck that other people in my in my meta around me are playing. I don't want to be playing an Edgar Markov deck if there's two other Edgar Markov decks. And the fact that Edgar Markov is a very popular general in the world at large also kind of makes me not like it. So I've just generally realized 
I just, for the most part, don't want to build a pre-con commander deck because it's going to bug me that somebody else near me has that deck or that a lot of people are playing it. So anymore, I just buy my, you know, I usually buy just one pre-con, maybe two, but I buy them knowing I'm just going to play it as a stock pre-con in like a pre-con league, which we usually do for a couple of weeks or against, you know, a buddy who bought a pre-con and is playing at stock. I'll pick up one for that purpose. But for the most part, I'm well aware that mentally it's going to bug me. So it, there's just, there's nothing from that deck commander wise that I'm going to want to build into a deck that's not going, that's, that's going to meet the criteria to be a keeper because it's just going to always annoy me that there's a bunch of other people playing it around me. How about, how about you, Matt? So the last pre-con that I bought was Edgar Markov. And that one, when I scrapped it, it I mean, obviously it's tribal. Not many of the parts are going to translate into other decks, maybe outside of some of the actual tribal cards themselves, like the Vanquisher's Banner might go into another tribal deck. But I scrapped it for mana because I, I spent pretty good chunk of change making sure that had pretty much perfect mana. So the mana base went into other decks. That one I, I did kind of used to fuel Tesa and then fill in some slots on some other decks. But the, that pre-con, it didn't really translate because it was so specific to Edgar Markov. So as far as when I take a pre-con apart and, and use it for parts, that's probably the best example because I think the last time I bought a pre-con before that was when we had the monocolor ones and I used all those all over the place. So, but that one, I kind of bought four parts almost. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask here because the last time that I, I t bought a pre-con and took it apart, I think I buy-listed most of the cards in there because, okay, I have all these vampires, what am I going to do with them besides an Edgar Markov deck? And the answer was not much. Huh, that's, that's interesting to hear. So you guys probably then, if you're looking for cards from pre-cons, it's going to be just through the singles market or something like that? Majority is, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, for the and most part here as well. Yeah, for me, I've got a group back home that I love playing with. And for us, we'll go through several play sessions with the pre-cons. We love playing against them, playing them against each other. Yeah. It's a really, really fun environment. We'll crank out an entire evening worth of games and we can keep the decks anywhere between that one evening and a month to like actually like let the cards kind of breathe. Maybe a month is generous, maybe three weeks or so. Uh, but like we generally do like to play around with those decks and keep them there. And then eventually we'll take them apart and start building the other stuff that we know that we want to. And usually we like doing that probably because like we're brewing in the meantime once the deck has come out you know my friend paul is going over his eureka list and he's you know fine-tuning that for the moment that he can finally take aminatu apart after we've had some fun with it and then it will also give him you know he can put all the stuff for eureka into the deck that he's been brewing on the sidelines but then he's also able to appreciate all of the stuff that's left over in case he wants to build anything with the remaining Esper cards that were in the deck too. That kind of deal. Um, and I feel like that's a, a really good dynamic as well. Be actually playing with them as much as possible, I think is really, really helpful because you might discover some stuff that you didn't realize you enjoyed. Like I don't think that I personally in, like expected to like Yannette Cryptic Sovereign as much as I do, but I totally did. And it was only by playing with that deck for so long that I found that out. Yeah, we did a similar thing with my playgroup back in Missouri was four of us we all bought one of the pre-cons it was the tribal ones and we would play a game and whoever won that game got to change two cards in their deck and everybody else got to change one card in their deck and we just played a bunch of games and eventually the decks were completely different than how they were out of the box but that was one thing that was incredibly fun to do with a pre-con because 
we got to play with all the pre-con cards for the majority of the time, but then we slowly got to progress them. It wasn't, okay, I'm going to buy this, play a couple games, and that's it. Like, we got to evolve those decks, and that was very, very fun to do. Yeah, this has been a really, really fascinating discussion. I like hearing about all of our different habits, but we've been on it for a while, and I think that it's probably time for us to quickly challenge some statistics. Dana, would you mind starting us off by challenging the stats? Absolutely. Uh, The card I'm going to challenge the stats on is an instant green, two and a green, Sprouting Vines. I don't think I know this one. All right. Spreading Vine says, search your library for a basic land card, reveal that card and put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. So that's pretty mundane for, for three mana. However- Wait, this is the one with Storm, however, isn't it? it has <sighs> Storm. Yeah. So I, I don't think this is going in every deck, but I think if you're playing one of those green decks that's looking to do landfall kind of shenanigans, and my Mina and Den deck qualifies- the problem that deck has is I oftentimes can play more lands than I have in hand, and I just want to get lands in hand. I want to have, you know, four or five, six lands so I can play them, play the extra one off Mina and Den, play an extra one off, you know, Oracle of Moldiah, play an extra one off of, you know, whatever I have out that lets me play multiple land drops per turn. And I can't always do three lands per turn unless I have that many in hand. Sprouting Vines is really, really, really effective to just put basics into your hand. And usually worst case, like on your turn, I mean, I would never do that. But like usually if someone just casts a spell and then you cast Sprouting Vines, you're going to get two lands. But I've never gotten two. I've never gotten just two lands off Sprouting Vines. I've, I think maybe I've done three, but I've drawn six or seven lands off Sprouting Vines before. That's like not that difficult to do on turn seven when, you know, someone plays a creature and tries to play a draw spell and someone counterspells that. End of the turn, you drop throwing lines and draw four or five cards just for people doing the normal thing they were doing. That feels so good in a landfall deck where you just want to have basics in hand. And I think it should yeah. be in more than 1,200 decks. I just, I've seen enough, whether it's Wind Grace or, or Angry Omnath or whatever, decks that want to put lands down multiple times per turn and they tend to run out. Man, try Sprouting Vines. I know it's tempting to look for the card that just ramps and puts lands into play, but being able just to have them in hand is super useful. Especially if you got things like Mina and Den or Exploration or yeah, Burgeoning, sure. any of those, they quickly get onto the battlefield. So yeah, that's a spot on challenge. I love it. I'm going to head up next with a weird card in a weird deck. I'm looking at Arabo War of War of the World, excuse me, Roar of the World. He's not a sci-fi movie. He is a cat avatar. This is that Eminence cat tribal deck that came out in Commander 2017. And the important ability for him is that on your turn, if it's in the command zone or on the battlefield, it gives another target cat you control plus three, plus three until end of turn. Not the kind of thing that immediately caught my eye, but I have a buddy who's got an Arabo deck and it is surprisingly aggressive. It is especially surprisingly aggressive because of the assistance of cards like Skyhunter Skirmisher. One white white for a cat knight with flying and double strike it's a one one it maybe doesn't seem like all that great until you give it a free plus three plus three and attack someone for eight in the air what stuns me is that this is only in 46 percent of arabo decks this is like the number one card in my eyes for arabo decks because it's just a free eight damage right out the gate 
I know that 46% is actually like a lot. That's nearly half of the Arabo decks, but it should be 100%. It's so, so darn good. And it's especially weird that a card like Adorned Pouncer, a two mana double striker with Eternalize, but it's just a 1 1 double striker, that shows up in 74% of Arabo decks. I really think that the Skyhunter Skirmisher should be in at least that much as well, like the Adorned Pouncer, because it's like th- that's one of the best things you can do when you're pumping up creatures is to make them hit your opponent twice as well. Yeah, that's a really good value card. Having the evasion on it is so, so useful. So good. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic card and absolutely should be in more decks. Yeah, and 46%'s a lot, but it needs to be 100. If you're playing in the cat tribal, that is a darn good cat. Matt, what's your challenge? So I've got a twofer actually for you guys. Um, so I was playing my Tasa deck last week, had a lot of fun, got some games in it, and kind of what we were talking about earlier, we talked about redundancy. You have so many different copies of the same type of effect in a deck that it's getting kind of crowded. So in Tesa, um, there's there's two types of cards that I, I I don't think are worth the man investment. The first one is going to be Harvester of Souls, which is four black black for a 5-5 five, five demon with death touch. And it says whenever another, whenever another non-token creature dies, you may draw a card, which it's a fine card by all means. It shows up in 42% of Tesa decks so far. But that mana cost is so expensive for what it does. The same thing also is true for Butcher Malakir, which is five black black for a five four flying vampire that says whenever Butcher Malakir or another creature you control dies, each opponent sacrifices a creature. So those are the very top end of what you can be doing in Taysen. And in Orzov, six mana is a lot of mana. Just a black white deck, those colors aren't really known for ramping, so... When you have cards that are so much lower on the curve, you have Midnight Reaper and Grim Harispecs to replace that Harvester of Souls. You have Dictate of Erebos and, and Grave Pact, which admittedly a little more mana intensive, but it's much less than seven mana than a, that a Butcher Malakir is. I think those two cards get pushed out. And when you get to six and seven mana in a Tasa Karlov deck, you want to be doing things that are going to win you the game. You already should have your engines online. So having more engines that are just more expensive versions of what you can be doing already isn't really what I think the deck wants to do. At that point, you want to be casting all your payoff cards, not your engine cards that are going to help get you value. I almost wanted to challenge stats actually on uh, Falconrath Noble and uh, Vindictive Vampire. Those are two cards that are showing up at a very high uh, clip. Those are basically the four mana versions of uh, Zulaport Cutthroat, where when a creature you control dies... Each opponent loses a life and you gain a life. Those are fine, but those also four mana is a big, big difference than seven mana. So I'm going to challenge that Butcher, Malakir, and Harvester of Souls should not be in over 42%, or in Butcher Malakir's case, 53% of Tasek Karloff decks. I actually, this, I keep on saying that this resonates with me, but like that so totally does, because when I was building Tasek Karlov, in my first draft of the deck, Half of the cards were above four mana, and that's just not acceptable. That's not good, like, no. And there's such good cards. I've got Kokosho and Yosei to capitalize on death triggers. I've got Revel and Riches, and I've got Black Market. I've got Divine Visitation for all my tokens. I'm running Regna and Krav and Grave Titan and Worm Coil Engine and Elspeth and Dictative Erebos, and those are all so expensive. And you need to have stuff to actually establish a board state at the beginning. So yeah, I'm actually totally in agreement with you. You have to pay attention to your mana cost in that deck, and you have to make the cut somewhere, and I think those are great picks. Yeah, I- Butcher is 100% an example of a card that I have put in plenty of decks. 
drawn and then st- sat there with it in my hand going, I don't want to cast this right now. Yeah, it's it, just those cards, for what they're doing, like I said, you want to be paying seven mana for a payoff card, a card that's going to come down and just immediately affect the game. Butcher Malakir, that's a terrible top deck on an empty board. And pr- particularly because... We, you know, where I play, I see so much exile removal, mm. and that feels so terrible to drop that seven mana spell and then have someone just like, okay, I'm gonna just charge the plowshares that. Yeah, it's they're just overcosted. You can do the the exact same effect for half the mana, and I think at that point, that's probably a, a smart move to consider. They are very solid budget picks, though, especially Butcher yes. of Malakir. So, like, that's always a thing to be sure. mindful of. For sure. But if if you're going to be mindful of your budget, you should just also make sure to be mindful of your mana costs as well, because your mana curve matters. Definitely, yeah. And if it's a budget consideration, by all means, and I've, I've said a couple times in my Taste of Karlov deck, I don't have Grave Pact or Dictative Erebos. Not that they're not incredibly powerful cards, but they're hard to interact with. They're just not very fun to play against. Butcher is much easier to get around if, you know, you cast that. People can answer it so it's not going to be near as oppressive. I understand that aspect of it. But if you're trying to min-max, if you're trying to, you know, Dana Roach it, Butcher Malakir is not the card that you want. Yeah, I, I am on board. That is a really careful consideration, and I like it. Alrighty, folks, before we officially wrap up the show, are there any other final thoughts that you have about the process of tweaking and tuning your decks? I don't have anything from me particularly, but but given how surprised I was at the answers we got back from when I, when I was talking to DJ and talking to Shivam, I would love to hear from our listeners how you guys handle these things, how you handle making changes when a new set comes out or just making changes in general to your deck. I, I think it's just kind of a fascinating thing to hear how other people do it. And if you want to reach out and let us know either through email or over Twitter, and you can find us at EDHRECCast. You can find us at edhreccast at gmail.com or on Twitter at edhreccast and let us know. Um, I would love to hear back about that. Yeah, it has been very interesting to hear how Matt doesn't touch his decks for a period <laughs> of 86 years and how Dana has to you know, go back over his decks every 86 seconds. Pretty much. I mean, I just I just change my decks once every day in his lifetime. Oh, oh. Ah. Got, <laughs> well, got me. On that bombshell, we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners want to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach, and you can hear me once a week on my other show, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenneth Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast, too. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fan fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. If you prank a guy long enough, he will then prank himself. Like, at one point, he was... That, that is true. He was super paranoid that I was going to cancel stuff on his wedding. That's what? what? Like, he had con- he contacted for his wedding, he contacted, like, the caterers and stuff and gave them my picture. 
and my and, and my and my phone number and said, if this guy calls you and says anything for my wedding, don't listen to him. I'm the only person that can make changes. I'm the only one who's authorized to make changes to my wedding. Because he was convinced I was going to do something to his wedding. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. So, uh, so I'll describe the guy to a little bit too. His his first week at work, he wore every day he wore a different Stone Cold Steve Austin t-shirt. <laughs> So if that sets really? the stage for the guy a little bit, I will, really? I, I think, I, yes. He had five different Stone Colds, he wore a different one every day for that whole week. So that's kind of badass. That guy so, like, just so we just called to establish dominance. Yeah. And, and he had, and he had the, steel, <laughs> the, the big steel chain on he wore, of course. So everyone called him Stone, that was his nickname. And still is to this day. Yeah. Like, if you work with weird IT guys for long enough, you're gonna get enough of those stories.